raise the bar on health and live with maximum vitality. This is the Vitality Podcast with Andrea Page. Andrea is a Bali-based naturopath redefining health as living with maximum vitality. Tune in for practical life advice and start aligning with what your body wants. Our bodies are trying to talk to us. Let's listen. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Andrea. I'm the director of the detox department here at the Yoga Barn, and it is my great pleasure to open space every Monday night for some critical thinking about health and, moreover, for some inspiration and a space where you can just start to think about things that uh, have been more or less indoctrinated inside of you. Yeah, you've been told it's this way and given no choice to think anything else. In fact, you've even been told how to think about things. And so a lot of my job as a teacher of anything, whether it's health or anything else, is to help people to think for themselves. And rather than taking someone else's framework of how to think, start to ask your own questions and empower yourself to find your own answers. And so I don't come to you tonight with a bunch of answers, pretending like I'm a know-it-all. Sometimes people think that that's how I am, but that means they just don't really know me, which is cool. That's fine. Um, and I do record my lectures, for those of you listening at home, for people who come through Ubud, and they'll come for several weeks to the lectures, and then they're like, I'm leaving, and I, I want to keep in touch. And so I started a podcast almost a year ago now, and I post the lectures as as I'm able. <laughs> and so that's what those little cards are going around. You can grab one. There's a link to my website. It's a little purple one. You might need a magnifying glass for it. They printed much smaller than intended. Uh, and the lectures are all free and available online there. And we talk about a different topic more or less every week. Some returners from a long time. Welcome back to you guys. And welcome to everyone who's new to this space. Um, I always start out the lectures by telling you a little bit about my biases, and I'm really passionate about that because I find that everyone who's giving a public lecture does definitely have some opinions, and I'm not an exception to that on any way, shape, or form. I just choose to be really upfront and clear about them so that there's transparency here. And so my opinions, my biases are rooted in natural health, something called natural hygiene. The fundamentals of what I do are based upon the inherent understanding that the body has the power the potential and the capability and the desire to heal itself. So that's not something you were taught in school. The body can heal itself. It simply has to be given the environment in which it can do so. And so we have some, some VIPs tonight, some cleansers who are here on a fasting program and they're well into their fast by now and uh, they're giving themselves this time and space for their body to heal them itself. And that's one of the greatest or biggest decisions that you can ever make in your life because it's a form of self-empowerment. So natural hygiene is based upon the science of fasting. And so that's what the cleansers are doing. They're fasting. They're going for a certain amount of time without taking in any solid fibrous matter. And the logic, the understanding behind fasting, which is what we talked about last week. How many of you were here last week? Cool. All right. So at least a handful of you. We talked about fasting, and um, for those of you who missed it, if you're just coming here, I have a do-it-yourself fasting lecture uploaded online, so you can download that tonight if you want. Um, But through fasting, we understand that by allowing the digestive system to shut off, the energy that would normally go to digestion gets 
to go and heal and cleanse at a cellular level. And so that's, that's what we want, is to give the body time to heal itself. Because it can, then it wants to, it just doesn't have the time when we give it so many tasks. Does that make sense? So lots to think about in that realm. That, those statements alone can give you a food for thought for a while, or no food for thought, <laughs> either way. Yeah. And when we come into our eating life, we can take what we've learned from our fasting life. And so in the realm of eating life, I have other biases. I'm a student of Colin T. Campbell, the author of the China study, the longest clinical nutrition study done in the history of man. It's a study that shows that the five most prevalent maladies of today, cancer, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, heart disease, and obesity, are all completely preventable as well as possible and reversible through diet and lifestyle change alone. And I'll tell you what that diet and lifestyle change is as we go through the lecture. Other biases of mine toward food, right? I already told you the fasting bias, are that I have a master's of science in something called ethnobotany. It's the study of the relationship between people and plants. And it can be any kind of plants, construction materials, like what kind of bamboo is used for those shades or what kind of cotton is used for the clothing that you're wearing. My specialty in ethnobotany is gastroethnobotany, food plants. And so I have a big bias toward plant-based food in both of those aforementioned realms. And moreover, I have a doctorate in naturopathy, which is the uh, practice simply of non-inventional, non-surgical medicine. But I often say that I'm not really a doctor of medicine, I'm a doctor of health. Because we spend a lot of time studying disease and trying to quantify and classify things when indeed right, we're ignoring health. And that's why this world today is sicker than it ever has been before. And so I try to bring the focus back to health. And my intention is to help people raise the bar on health, where we're no longer understanding health simply as absence of disease, but rather as living with maximum vitality. And so I'm here to tell you that there is a possibility that you can wake up every morning feeling like you did when you were a kid, with that boundless energy, with that possibility, with that optimism and that hope, that hope for life and for future, and for knowing that actually you can feel good. And perhaps have a new understanding of what it is to feel good. And so every Monday night is my little two cents hints on how to feel good, and tonight we'll be talking uh, through the realm of food, which isn't often something that I talk about in the Monday night lectures. Um, and the structure of it will be that I'll talk for about a half hour or so, and then the rest of the time that we'll have together, I'll open up to questions. So I do ask that you save all questions to the end, and the reason for that is because I go off on tangents enough on my own as it is. <laughs> so if people throw in more tangents, then I just get really lost and we lose the lecture. So save your questions, I do value them, um, and any question that's not answered tonight, I am available and accessible through a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash cleansewithandrea, and I answer all messages on there personally, it's the only place that you can actually contact me personally, um, and I'm passionate about giving your answers, and Facebook actually also grades me on how well I reply to people, so it's, it works for you guys, right? <laughs> Good. So, I wrote a whiteboard for tonight's event, and... Um, before we get into talking about food, the topic of tonight's lecture is indeed the raw food diet. And I want to talk about it from many different perspectives uh, and try to give you a bit of a holistic look on it. Some of you may have had experience with it, others of you haven't. And the reason that this is the lecture topic for tonight is because 
on the Facebook page where I have about 2,000 followers as of now. Um, I, I don't mean to say followers. I mean to say people who care about their health and care about thinking critically and people who are always asking questions and engaging in the stuff that I post and submitting things to me for posting. I love when people submit things and then I, I'm happy to post them. And um, so this month on Live for Vitality on the Facebook page and in the community, I've challenged everyone to a month of raw, which doesn't mean that they have to go for the whole month eating raw food, but perhaps a week or perhaps a day or perhaps however long they feel comfortable doing it. Because what I'm inviting people to do is to start to make experiments. And so I want to say that through this lecture, and really through every lecture I give, all I'm doing is giving you ideas and guidelines for experimentation. What I say and what I know is only truth for me. I encourage you to find your own truth through your own honest experimentation. Right? But to have the honesty in that experimentation, it requires certain understanding of guidelines and parameters of how to experiment. And so that's what we're doing here. We're learning how to become scientists in the living laboratory of our body. Make sense? Yeah? All right. So some fundamentals before we get into the aspect of food. Because when people talk about healthy living and healthy diets and things like that, food is almost always the number one thing on people's mind. But I'm here to take a step back and remind you that there are things that are so much more important than food. Yeah, so some of the fundamentals that we have to actually take in and eat that are way more important than food. The first one up there is air. Right? Fresh, clean oxygen. A lot of times in Bali, unfortunately, like in a yoga class earlier today, there was a the smell of burning plastic. That releases certain diatoxins, things that are pretty much the most toxic chemical that we could ever invent. It's what happens when you burn different plastic polycompounds. Right? And it's released into the air. And of course, we breathe this not only through our nose, but through our skin. Right? It's unfortunate, but it's the world we live in today. And so the fortunateness of fresh, clean air, like the house I live in is up, it's, it's in a hill, it's in Penistanon on the other side of town, and it's up really nice and high, and then I'm up on the third story where my bedroom is, and I sleep with the windows wide open, and it's incredibly clean air. Some of you that come from mountainous countries or places like that, you can value the freshness and the cleanliness of the air. And this is something that we can't, or at least we haven't figured out how to yet, bottle and sell. <laughs> right? And so it's something that we have to just appreciate as it is. And it's something to really reflect upon wherever you live, wherever you spend most of your time. And if you do live in a city or a place where it's polluted or clogged, can you make time to drive out into the countryside at least once a week somewhere where you can breathe clean, fresh air and have your breath not only be of clean air, but have it be bountiful and full inside of your body, the way in which you take in air. So we have here at the Yoga Barn Pranayama, yogic breathing class. It's something pivotal for many people's growth and really important because most of the time today, we as humans breathe very shallowly. In fact, we use about 20% of our lung tissue. That's like one-fifth. <laughs> That's like none. <laughs> right, so everyone take a deep breath. Belly, ribs, chest lift. And then relax. <sighs> my assignment or my invitation to you is to do that for the next hour as you listen. And notice when you forget, I have faith in you that you can double task. Right? We have pretty clean air quality, more or less, right here, right now. So 
take advantage of it. And this is number one. We know that we can thrive and survive. Well, I, you guys don't know, but I'm going to tell you. We can thrive and survive for 40 to 50 or more days on water alone without any food. We can thrive and survive without water itself for maybe three to maybe 10 or depending, more days, depending on how hydrated you were before you stopped drinking water. All right. But without air, we can survive for much, much, much less time. So if we're going to look at needs for health, this is number one, on par with love. All right, next thing I've written up here, fundamentals, water. We are not simply, simply not drinking enough water today. Who knows how much water the human body uses and loses every day? Three liters. Yeah, quite a few of you knew that. You've been to these lectures before. That's the minimum that we have to replace. And of that, we're not really drinking good quality water. Mineral spring water is the water that we're meant to be drinking today. So I have other lectures that go into more detail about this if you're interested. But just considering that the first thing that we're feeding ourselves, right? We care so much about the quality of our food, organic food, this and that. But then we'll go and we'll drink tap water. Right? Or we'll, we won't really care about where our water is coming from or what the quality is. And so waking up to the quality of water, not in the kind of like Fiji water sense or Evian, not in the imported bottled plastic water sense, but in terms of going to the source. Right? There are so many living active springs. You know, you know what a spring is? Spring water? It's water that's been sifted through the earth for thousands of years. Water that's pooled under the ground, run over the rocks, been remineralized. And when it's built up enough pressure and it's at the perfect mineral balance, it <laughs> springs up through the ground and says, drink me, right? It's like, it's like Mother Earth is giving us from her teats the perfect thing that we can suckle to make our life complete. And I encourage everyone as much as possible to become a connoisseur of water, right? We're connoisseurs of fermented grapes, right? Wine. Why not be a connoisseur of the fundamental thing, the thing that makes up 60 to 90% of our body, water? All right, next fundamental need is sunlight. And this one's super, super, super important. And I know you guys are in Bali, you're loving it, you're on holiday, you're like, yeah, give me the sun. And then after a certain point, you're like, oh my God, it's hot. <laughs> give me the AC. But the truth is that sunlight is irreplaceable. You know, of course, what vitamin comes from the sun? Yeah, vitamin D, right? But that's really relative because you're not going to be able to absorb the vitamin D if you don't have enough greens in your diet. So that's important. The hours to absorb vitamin D are between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m., so midday sun. And it can only really be absorbed to naked skin. And that doesn't mean going bare naked, butt naked, although today, May 2nd, is International Naked Gardening Day, in case you were interested. I posted a post and I got so many likes, it was incredible, and people thought it was a picture of me naked on the thing, it wasn't. You can check that out on the Facebook page later, maybe do some sun, twilight, naked gardening tonight. But uh, knowing that indeed bare skin is required, and so what that means is like if you have your arms exposed or your face exposed or your back or something like that with no sunscreen on. And it only takes about 15 minutes to get our fill of vitamin D, and so it's not like you have to stay out there till you get burned. But knowing that sunlight is not only powerful for vitamin and mineral balance, but it's also just about the best disinfectant that we could ever ask for. So if you ever have any kind of skin illness, 
right? whether it be a yeast-like condition or acne or whatever it is, putting it in sunlight will help it. If you ever have a piece of clothing or an item that's molding, putting it in sunlight will stop the growth. Right? Sunlight is the most cleansing thing that we could ever ask for. And so that's really powerful. I mean, even water filters use UV filtration, UV sterilization. And so using the sun for its UV power to literally disinfect is, is something we have to acknowledge and don't often enough. All right, we've had enough of the fundamentals. We can get into the heart of the lecture. Some food for thought. And uh, I just, I, I want to mention those fundamentals because I would feel really incomplete or somehow misleading if we went into the second part of the lecture without covering the fundamentals. And the thing is that those fundamentals are things that people don't normally talk about. I mean, if I say, you need air, water, and sunlight, and I hadn't gone into detail about those, you guys would be like, yeah, and roll your eyes and not really think about it. But when we learn how to think about things, or perhaps when we learn to question things that we take for granted, that's when we start to get somewhere on this quest for truth of health. And I'll say that quest for truth of health, that was the name of the lectures. I recently changed them to health satsang. And satsang is the quest for truth, normally sitting in community. Normally it's in a spiritual context. Uh, and in this case, it's in the context of the human body and health. The quest for that essence, that truth that you know inside of you. I'm not telling you anything tonight that you don't already know. That's not my intention. My intention is rather to remind you of things that you do deeply know inside of you that resonate as deeply true and that awaken something inside of you to continue asking questions. All right. So food for thought. In talking about the raw food diet, I suppose we should define it more or less. When we discuss the idea of a raw food diet, there are many things that can pop to mind. Uh, primarily, what I think of as a raw food diet is something that was uh, carried on a 100 years ago or more by my teachers, the natural hygienists. And what it means is simply to eat plants, more or less above ground plants, in their natural state. And that's it. So how does that translate? By eating tons of fruits and vegetables. Pretty much only eating fruits and vegetables. I make the joke often, I bet you've never heard fruits and vegetables are good for you. Yes, you, anyone never heard that before? <laughs> no, right? Everyone's heard that. And the thing is, though, we don't apply it. And we all know it, but we don't apply it. We forget it, because it's not what is normal. It's not what is the norm. But yet, that's where health is. That's why we all know it. And so that is what I think of as a raw food diet. It's eating mostly, if not only, fruits and vegetables above ground plants in their natural state. It's super, super, super simple. Yeah, simplicity is the number one thing that we can embrace if we want to have a healthy, working human body. Point blank. From there, uh, I'll say that the modern raw food diet has gone a bit astray. That's okay when we make things like raw panna cotta and raw cheesecake and raw lasagna, right? Unfortunately, they're going to digest just like their non-raw equivalents. Yeah, a lot of the modern raw food diet, which is seen quite liberally in Ubud. I just came from uh, Down to Earth, which is a great restaurant. Love it. Wonderful. Committed to sustainable uh, sourcing. Committed to serving up lots of delicious plants and committed to using good oils in 
their cooked varieties of food. Uh, great restaurant down to earth. Liat's a friend of mine. I love it. Though, right, they have this giant raw food menu where there was like raw pasta and a raw veggie burger. That one was funny, right? Because the veggie burger is an impersonation of the hamburger. And then they're making a raw impersonation of the impersonation of the hamburger. That was really funny. <laughs> Sorry, no one else? Okay. So <laughs> when we look at this, we see that essentially a modern raw foodist who's eating all these raw cakes and crackers and lasagna and pizza and cookies and veggie burgers raw, right? they're actually consuming an average of 60% of their calories from fat. What I see most in raw foodists is really poor modern raw foodists, really poor food combining. And you guys can go on my podcast and check out the lecture on food combining. It tends to be that last little key unlocking the last door of digestive wellness or unwellness. Yeah. Moreover, uh, modern raw foodists today are finding that with their digestive unwellness from improper food combining, because it's so many different foods together, an average of 60% of their calories from fat that's a lot. That's more than most calories from fat. And that's from all the nuts and seeds that are used to make pastes and pâtés and sauces so that it tastes kind of like pizza. See that? But the thing is that nuts and seeds really aren't meant to be digested by the human body. Come with me botanically and visit the fact that the nut or the seed, which botanically they're both seeds, more or less, some nuts are actually fruits. But this is the embryo of the plant. This is the baby plant. It's as if the plant is pregnant and the seed is giving birth to a new plant. Well, I mean, it's a concentrated protein. It's the future of life. It's not something that the plant wants you to eat and digest. It's actually something that the plant brilliantly disguises in juicy, fleshy matter. Think of a strawberry one of the most incredible biological beings on the planet. Right? A strawberry, this teeny sweet little berry, red in color, super seductive, right? makes you want to pick it, nice and juicy, has tons of seeds, hundreds of seeds on the outside of the strawberry, all so teeny, so small that you could never chew them. You can't pick them off or out either, so what do you do? You eat them, you swallow them. They move through your digestive system, and all nuts and seeds have a certain endotoxic coating around them that makes them undigestible to the human digestive tract. So then they pass through, more or less untouched, with the plant's biological imperative that then you will go probably hundreds of kilometers away and poop, defecate out those seeds, undigested, in a perfect pile of compost, thereby replanting the plant and furthering its genetic spawn. Does that make sense? Brilliant, aren't they? And so that's why nuts and seeds aren't digestible. And I can tell you that from the botanical, theoretical realm. I can also tell you that from the practical realm. As a career colon hydrotherapist, I've seen a lot of poop in my day. Okay? The director of the colonics clinic here at the Yoga Barn, a clinic that is indeed one of the best in the world, and I don't say that only because I'm the director of it. I say it because we're really super freaking serious about what we do. And we do it in a really responsible and intentional way. And so you can come back another week if you want to hear more about colon cleansing or talk to someone who's had a colonic here or just try it out because it's probably half the price of where it is when you live, where you live. So, you know. anyway, 
But through the colon hydrotherapy tube, we see all the time nuts and seeds coming out undigested, just like pieces. You chewed it, and then it came out, didn't go anywhere. That, anything that goes undigested through the human digestive tract acts as a stress on the digestive tract. It takes energy away from that boundless vitality that I mentioned at the beginning. Because it's stressed and trying to work on the assignment that you've given it that's impossible. Of course, in the modern raw food uh, gastronomique take on things with the raw pizza and all that, right? raw gnocchi, that's a good one. <laughs> God, they always surprise me. Anyway, when we do that, we find that often the nuts and seeds are ground into a paste, which is marginally more digestible, but still we're eating way more than we would ever eat in the wild. Yeah, I've been blessed in my lifetime to be on the south coast of Italy, on my friend's family's farm, picking from the tree fresh almonds, right? And then going with rocks and pounding them against each other to open the almond shell and eat the fresh, delicious, succulent, hydrated almond. Sorry for you guys fasting. <laughs> Don't think. I, I spent too long. But that, mind you, that was a lot of effort that I had to put out. And so how many almonds did I eat? Maybe eight. <laughs> right? And it took me an hour. <laughs> That's how things are in the wild. But what do we have today? Bags of nuts and seeds, right? Or that raw cheesecake filled with ground nuts and seeds. Doesn't get easier than that. And so our body simply doesn't know how to use or digest these things. And it ends up creating a lot of backup in the human body. And this is evidenced by often the bowel patterns of raw foodists. I used to live in India. I hope she doesn't listen to this. I used to live with a woman who was a raw food chef, and she's quite well known in India, and like she's a big, she's a naturopathic doctor as well, and she teaches people raw food cooking classes. And as a poop doctor, right now, I am the poop guru. I looked at her poop sometime when she had left some in the toilet, you know, because that's what I do. I'm a scientist. Of course, it was floating, which indicates that there was undigested matter in there. And of course, it was filled with like raw carrots. Right? Things that were undigested. And we'll get to the concept of raw carrots a little bit down the road. But we find that people on the modern raw food movement diet who have kind of gone astray, mind you, it's way better than people who are eating McDonald's and Burger King and real pizza and whatever else. You know, They're much healthier because they're not having all of the food additives and chemicals and preservatives. They're not having all of the animal products which are correlated to disease. This is simple science. So they're definitely healthier, but it's not really what was intended with the original raw food diet. Does that make sense? So I just wanted to state that disclaimer because the fact of the matter is that here in Ubud, we have a higher percentage per capita of raw food availability than anywhere else in the entire world. Higher than New York City, higher than any other metropolitan area, higher than Los Angeles, all these other places that are you know, raw food havens. Right? Ubud is indeed one of the biggest markers on the map. Yeah. So that's something to be aware of. And I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I have no expectations of you guys. I'm not saying, don't eat the raw cheesecake, right? I mean, sure, try the, try the raw cheesecake if you want, but really pay attention to how you feel afterward. Pay attention to how your poop is 24 hours later. Right? Become a scientist in this body. That's when stuff gets exciting and starts making sense. All right. So, from there, we will get right into the lecture. My first point up here in Food for Thought 
is talking about the original diet. And some of you may have heard me talk about this in the food combining lecture, because I take you back in time with me. My master's in ethnobotany was under the Department of Anthropology, and I did a long study on evolutionary anthropology, where I went back in time about three to four million years ago. That's a lot of millions of years ago, more than I can count. Right? We find that that is more or less the time where we broke away in evolution, and I'm, I, you don't have to believe in evolution if you don't, if biology is not your thing, if that's not the way you look at the world. This is just tends to be the modern way that people talk to each other. That doesn't mean it's right. right. Indigenous people all over the world have different stories of evolution, dream times of how humanity came to be. Evolution isn't necessarily right. It's just one way of seeing the world, the way in which we look through the lens of science. Right, so that's what I'm going to talk about, but I'm giving that disclaimer that you don't have to take this as serious if you have your own dreamtime understanding of the world. But in biology, in the realm of science, we have this split off in evolution somewhere three and a half million years ago, more or less, where we parted from the great apes. And so the great apes are things like chimpanzees, bonobos, orangutans, you know them? Anyone been to Borneo? It's so close, you should go see them, they're gorgeous. Right? And these guys with whom we still share like up to 98% of our DNA. That's like almost all of our DNA still shared with them, right? They're not distant cousins. They're really super close cousins. We still have some gingers, some redheads. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. <laughs> Did I make you blush? <laughs> okay. So we find that three and a half million years ago, what were we eating? If you were to go in a zoo today and ask someone what they feed the bonobos or what they feed the orangutans or the gorillas, the great apes, what do they feed them to mimic their natural diet? Because mind you, our digestive tract has changed marginally, teeny, teeny, teeny little bit in the three million years prior. So it's almost very similar still to those great apes, which we mistakenly would call monkeys. That's a different species. Anyway, so we find that when we ask the zoologist what they eat in their natural kingdom, they say, well, they eat a bunch of above-ground plants in their natural state. They eat tons of fruit and leafy green vegetables. It's simple. That's what they feed them. Sometimes they get insects. Perhaps they were inside of the fruit and it was a mistake. Of course they eat them. No big deal. I eat insects in my salad all the time. Right? I don't know about it most of the time, which is good. It happens. C'est la vie. So we find that this concept of the original diet is going back in time before we had all of this modern civilization and moreover, before the ecosphere started to change. Because the earth itself shifted. We went through different periods of ice age. We went through different cycles of feast and famine. We, as the human species, has been through so much. And we are incredibly resilient. And a lot of the changes and the coping mechanisms that we went through in changing our diet, right? In the Paleolithic time, starting to see, oh, look, bunny eats leaf, bunny survives. Bear eats, or maybe not bear, maybe lion eats bunny, gets leaf. And so we said, what if we eat bunny? That's my caveman accent for you. <laughs> we find that we started to alter our diet from its original sense to survive because we simply weren't living in a tropical fruit forest anymore. We're meant to come from places like Bali, where we're surrounded by tropical fruit, where above-ground plants in their natural state are easy to find and abundant to eat. 
So this idea of original diet goes way back beyond the time of agriculture, which, mind you, is only 10,000 years old. That's very, very new in the scope of human history. Beyond the Paleolithic time, way beyond, back to three, three and a half, four million years ago. What were we eating when we were living in our natural environment, when our species started to evolve, when our digestive system made its way to be different than others? Above-ground plants in their natural state, fruits and vegetables, ladies and gentlemen. That's why those are the things that are good for us. Because that's what our body understands and knows how to digest. That's what we were literally made to eat. If you had a Lamborghini, you would feed it the highest quality food. You would give it the highest quality fuel. You wouldn't put cheap petrol that's been mixed with oil and a bunch of other stuff in your Lamborghini. You just wouldn't do that. At least I don't know anyone in their right mind who would. It's a Lamborghini. Your body's the same exact way, except we're feeding it super cheap fuel today. And we're saying, look, the car still runs. Sure, if you feed really low quality fuel to your Lamborghini, it'll still run. But any race car driver will tell you that it won't run as well as it could. Does that make sense? So coming back to my intention of raising the bar on health, Looking at health no longer as absence of disease, like, oh yeah, the car's running, it's not broken down. <laughs> right? But saying, no, actually, how close can we cut those corners? How fast can we go to zero to 60 kilometers per hour? Or whatever the race car terms are. I don't know any race car drivers in here. Somehow two of my past boyfriends became race car drivers. I don't know. That's so weird. Karma. Yeah. So we find that we would indeed feed the best fuel, not only to the Lamborghini, but to our human body in order to maximize its potential. Does that make sense? So this is super simple stuff. Yeah, fruits and vegetables. When we talk about the original diet, that's what I'm referring to. Now, some specificities on that, if you travel back with me three million years, we're going to look at how things were arranged. Because mind you, three million years ago, we didn't have the concepts of breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> right? We didn't really even have the concept of forks or knives or plates or a meal. Right? We ate when we wanted, we ate until we were full, and then we moved on. There wasn't set times. You know, all of that is a modern invention with civilization. And so is that necessary? I don't know. Is it necessary for you psychologically? If it is psychologically, okay. Biologically, not really. Yeah, we know that because in this original diet, there I am, <laughs> three million years ago. I'm walking around, and I'm hungry. And so I go and I find maybe an orange tree, okay? Oh, it's lunchtime. <laughs> I would never say that three million years ago. But there I go. I find the ripest, most colorful oranges that smell the freshest, right? The most potent. Look, that's why fruits and vegetables are so bounteous in color so we can tell when they're ripe. That's why human beings have a sweet tooth because right? we're meant to eat the ones that are riper because they're higher in calories. They're sweeter, right? That's why we can see all these different colors. For example, I'm sure you've heard your puppy dogs cannot see so many colors like you can because they're carnivorous. They eat flesh, so they don't need to see color. But we, we're meant to eat above-ground plants in their natural state, so we can see all these different colors, so we can tell when things are ripe and we can tell what's good for us and not. Right? So there I am at the orange tree, vibrant orange, smelling of citrus, just gorgeous. Maybe even one fruit falls to the ground and I say, that one. Right? The tree told me it was ripe. 
And then I peel it and I eat it and I throw the peel away, this perfect packaging that the greatest chef on earth, Mother, Mother Nature, has created for us. And I throw it away and that goes to compost. And I'm still there by the tree and I'm still hungry after one. So I go and I eat another one and then another one and another one. And I continue eating until I'm full. That's the same thing that we do in our meals. We're just eating way more ingredients, which is way more work for our body. Listen into the food combining lecture if you want more on that. But understanding that there I am three million years ago, I'm eating orange after orange after orange after orange until finally I feel full and I say, okay, ha, ha. I'm gonna, <laughs> for some reason I spoke like a man three million years ago, but I walk on. Yeah. And that's how life went. This is a concept that's called mono-mealing. Mono meaning one from Latin, mealing, meal, right? One thing eaten during the meal. In that orange meal, how many ingredients were there? One. Simple. The thing is, I only gave my body one assignment. Simplicity, right? The body's going to be way more effective and way more efficient when it has to digest one thing than it would be if I gave it 50 things. And mind you, the modern human meal today has more than 50 ingredients in it when we count every little thing in the sauces and all of the different dishes and this and that and the other. And each one is a chemical signal to the body. So the more we can simplify, the more effective and efficient our body will be. So these are some food for thought. Next up, seasonal. So of course that orange tree maybe only blossomed and fruited once or twice per year. And the rest of the year, maybe I was with mangoes or dragon fruit or some other crazy tropical fruit high in calories that no longer exists today because we simply didn't invest in it and we destroyed the ecosphere. So it's no longer there. But three million years ago it was, and it was delicious. Can you imagine all of those fruits that we have no idea about? I tried to do my master's thesis research on that, and then I couldn't find them. Right? It's no fun when you can't taste them or I write about them. So I changed it. Anyway, so we find... That seasonality is an inherent part of understanding. Unfortunately, this is something that we've totally lost in the modern world, especially with something like apples. You guys know the Washington apples? They come from my country of birth, the United States of America. And the Washington apples are horribly subsidized by the American government so that they can actually be sold for cheaper than it costs to grow them. Moreover, they're stored in big old freezers and refrigerators for six months out of the year so that they can be available all year round and shipped worldwide. Moreover, they're covered in what's called shellac, also known as furniture polish. They're polished with the same stuff that you would use to wax the floors. (laughs) That's not really digestible. And so our concept of fruit today simply isn't really fruit. It's like a fake food or a preserved food or something that belongs in a museum, not in your belly. You see that? And so the idea of seasonality, and I would add to this locality, making sure that you're getting things locally, is such an important idea to living this kind of natural lifestyle and diet. Does that make sense? Really important. Super simple as well. And then finally, living and raw. So the idea behind the idea of an alive diet or a living food diet, a raw food diet, is that there are essential chemical reactors in the food. These are called enzymes. And the enzymes 
are everything that you need to digest the food. So, for example, in a mango, another food that's been perfectly packaged by the greatest chef on earth, mother, remember her, nature, Miss Nature, right? It's been perfectly packaged, and inside of that easy-to-go food, right, to-go, fast food, mango, we have everything you need inside of it for the mango to digest itself. You have all of the hydration, so it doesn't need any water from your body to digest. There's still water inside the mango. Right? All of, of course, the nutrients and minerals that your body could ever want, because mangoes are so delicious, calories, right? from the good source. And more than anything, it has enzymes. It has the live chemical reactors. I like Chemically, I like to think of enzymes as like the people who start the party. They're not people, but they're you know chemical reactors. And so these are the things that get the job of digestion going. Right? They boost or start a chemical reaction. And they're there inside of the mango. The thing is, the moment that that mango sits on a grocery shelf forever, or is dehydrated, or dried, or cooked, I don't know why you would cook mango, but if you cook mango, right, what happens is that the exposure to the heat denatures the enzymes, as well as loses nutritional value of the mango. It decreases when it's exposed to heat. Well, this makes sense. If you think of the chemical structure of something simple like you know, for example, like human hair. Did anyone ever do this when you were a kid? You put your hair over a fire flame. What happens? <laughs> it gets curlier than it already is. <laughs> and it denatures. What you're seeing are the amino acid chains, the building blocks of life, Right, the protein structure is completely denaturing as the hair curls over the flame. This is simply what happens when exposed to heat. And so when we expose things like fruits or vegetables or other food to heat like this and we cook it, it's essentially killing the food. And I'm not, I'm not talking from a point of advocacy. I don't expect you guys to walk out of here and be raw foodists. So please don't be defensive in your mind. We're not having a discussion here. I'm just telling you why people are proponents of the raw food movement and why it makes a lot of sense. These enzymes as well will help to enrich the body and they won't steal from your natural living supply of enzymes. So enzymes are in food and enzymes are also in our body. But the thing is that people today are eating such dead food, food that's overly cooked, dried or fried, right? that they have to rob the enzyme sources in their own body to digest the food because the enzymes that were naturally in the food, like in the mango, they don't come with the mango anymore once it's been cooked. Does that make sense? Perhaps the mango is a bad example, but I think you get what I'm talking about. Right? And so when you rob your body of its own enzymatic resources, what happens is the body doesn't have any chemical reactors to perform the chemical reactors of detoxification or house cleaning, self-healing. Does that make sense? So the body doesn't have the energy to self-heal. It doesn't have literally the tools. You can think of enzymes as like brooms to sweep things up. If they're too busy sweeping up things that you ate that didn't have their own brooms, right, and they start to sweep up then for the food, then they won't have any energy left to sweep up to clean your own body. So a raw food diet, because of its enzymatic activity, is inherently a detoxifying diet. Not to mention the fact that above-ground plants in their natural state are water-containing fibrous matter. Water-containing fibrous matter. Right? Because you know fiber makes you poop, right? You've been told that in school, right? And by the pharmacist and other people, by the baker. Yes, anyone? No? 
If you can't poop, eat more fiber, they say. And when you think of fiber, if you grew up in the second half of the 1900s like I did, right, then you probably think that fiber is like Weetabix or whole grain bread. Because that's what we are marketed by the wheat industry, the lobbyists from the agriculturalists, largely from the United States, the wheat lobbyists. But the thing is that that fiber, because right, fiber is just plant matter, right, it's the vegetable fibrous matter from above ground plants, or even below ground plants, just plants, right, it's the fiber, it can be either hydrated or dehydrated, like bread, right, or your Weetabix. That's dehydrated. It's dry. It's inherently dry, so it's going to require water from your body to digest. You see that? The mango. It's wet. has tons of fiber in it. If you guys have ever tried to cut a mango or you've got mango fiber stuck in your teeth, you know what I'm talking about. Well, these fibers, they bulk up your bowel movement. They make it easier to remove. They make it bigger. You want big poops. Hurrah, big poops. Maybe that's my new campaign. I'm always starting campaigns. Write that down, Petri. Hurrah, big poops. Okay? We find that bigger poops have more space for toxicity, right? So the body can naturally clean itself more effectively. It's simple, this stuff. Okay, so what else do we have on our list? Living raw, enzymes, alkalinity, and oxygen. So, uh, alkalinity, we'll go there. Do you guys remember high school chemistry when there was this chart from 0 to 14, acid to alkaline, something like battery acid tests as one, the litmus test, the little test paper strip turns red. Yeah, you remember this? So human blood is roughly 7.34, slightly alkaline. It cannot deviate from that even marginally above or below or else you'll die. The thing is today, most of the things that we often eat Things like alcohol, coffee, those are both at like two or three acidity. Even things like animal products, milk, dairy, cheese, things like fast food, any kind of processed food, all of these are very acidic. And when something like coffee, for example, an acidity of two or three comes into the human body, the body itself essentially panics. It freaks out because it has to keep the alkalinity of the bloodstream. It cannot deviate, remember, above or below or else you'll die. And so it's willing to do whatever it takes to maintain 7.34. So you drink that coffee or that alcohol, and essentially the body goes, ah! Sorry for people listening at home on the mic. (laughs) It starts to scavenge and scour and look for the most alkalizing minerals it can find in the body to realkalize the bloodstream. No surprise, one of the most alkalizing minerals is calcium. Where do we find calcium? In the bones! Good, I'm glad no one said milk. Right, about that one, because milk is also very acidifying inside of the body and thus will also leach calcium from the bones to realkalize the blood. So do I have any big coffee drinkers in the room? Because you guys are building your body as it will be 5, 10, 20 years from now. And how do you want that body to be? What are you doing now to create your future self? Are you destroying and deconstructing or are you building and strengthening? And that's a question for you to ask yourself and for you to answer yourself. It's not, it's none of my business. I'm just here to stir up the questions. And so anyway, 
the whole idea of the raw food diet is that when you go to the other side of the chart of the foods between 7 to 14, the foods that are alkalizing inside of the human body, guess what you find? Yeah, fruits and vegetables above ground plants in their natural state. Is it starting to make sense? Those are the things that alkalize the body. Those are the things that hydrate. Those are the things that give us back the enzymes. These are the things that create life inside of the body that give us big old bowel movements. What was my campaign? I already forgot it. Hurrah, big poo. <laughs> was that it? Yeah? It couldn't be better than that. Really? So these are the thought processes behind eating a raw food diet. It's said that food itself has vibration. And this is the idea behind the yogic diet. The yogic diet is one that is a diet for meditation because the yogis want to be vibrating on quite a high level. And you can measure things vibration by megahertz, you know that? And so it's said that leafy green vegetables, one of the things with the highest vibrating level, when they're still alive versus when they're cut off the plant, they're vibrating at a higher level, right? The leafy green vegetable, two weeks after it's been picked, when it's been shipped halfway across the world and put in a refrigerator, right? it's not vibrating at such a high level. Its enzymatic activity is not so high. Its nutrition has degraded day after day, moment after moment, as it's been oxygenized and denatured. Yeah, that's honest. So we want things to be local and seasonal, remember? So they're not shipped halfway across the world. So we find, then, that uh, the prana or the life force energy, this is the yogic term for it, prana, is alive in all living things, including food. And so if we eat alive living foods, we will feel alive and living. And I have this really, it's almost like corny. It's a food pyramid for the yogic diet, and it goes from the highest vibrating foods, right? These things have been actually analyzed by their vibration frequency to the lowest vibrating foods. And what's at the bottom? Any guesses? Yeah, flesh, dead flesh. And some people who eat meat are like, that's so rude, you're calling it dead flesh. And it's like, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm, What? It, that's what it is. And I'm not saying there's good, I, I don't have judgment in that. I'm just honestly saying it's, it's dead flesh. Just like if you cut off my arm, please don't. But if you cut off my arm and it were here, it would be dead flesh. You see that? Hold your question, hold on. So we find that on this yogic diet vibrating chart, and this isn't, again, this isn't my opinion or my prerogative, this is really yoga, because in the Vedas, which are the books of yoga from the Himalayan mountain range, they say that freshly fallen fruit is the purest yogic food. And in yoga, we have this concept of sattva. Sattva is the nature of things in their perfect balanced state. And sattvic food, the food that it's recommended that you eat, guess what it is? Two words with an and in the middle. Fruits and vegetables, right? Super simple. It's all starting to tie in together. Yeah? And so when we look at this, um, I'll finish my part of the lecture and then we'll open to questions with pros and cons because we find that uh, there are many different discussions and arguments and agreements about pros and cons of the raw food diet today. And I hope to spend this last few minutes just sorting them out a little bit some pros of the raw food diet, which we've been talking about so far, because that was my intention in presenting it to you, are that it's high in enzymes and high in prana, high in life force. This is living food that will make you feel more alive. 
Something that I didn't add that I'll add right now is that fruits and vegetables are also the fastest digesting foods through the organ of the stomach, which means you will have to put forth the least amount of energy to get the most return nutritionally and calorically. That's kind of awesome if you guys were like investment bankers and I said you had to invest the least energy or money for the greatest return. You would say, heck yeah, count me in. Become an investment banker with your fork and your knife and your spoon and your stomach and your big old poos. Okay? All right. So next up, pros of the raw food diet, that it's nutritionally dense. So we already talked about this. You're getting power-packed food, food that is vibrant in color, right? Variety, simplicity within meals, variety between meals. We start to say, wow, this is about the most nutrition that I could ever want. All right, from there, uh, and I'll just say there that probably some of you are thinking this thing that you've been taught. Remember I told you people aren't only telling you what to think, they're teaching you how to think in these constricting ways. That's how I started the evening's lecture. Because some of you probably have the question running around in your mind, but where do we get our protein? I don't know what accent that was, but did anyone think that? You can be honest. It's okay if you did. Well, I want you to ask a gorilla. Where does he get his protein? Because he's freaking big. I don't want to get in a cage fight with a gorilla. You see that? So that whole conception of this need for protein is something that developed from the 60s. It wasn't really alive before that. It was a misconception by the guy who discovered protein. He said, wow, this is a really good thing. This is amino acid chains. This is what life is built off of. Right? This is amazing. Well, we can't have too much of a good thing. Get more protein, he said. Little did he know the effect that that would have on us not pooping or getting sicker over time. And mind you, that's what the dietary study, remember I mentioned at the beginning, the China study from Dr. Colin T. Campbell out of Cornell University, longest clinical nutrition study ever done comparing the diets of rural Chinese people a few generations back with the standard American, finding that those five most prevalent diseases are all not only preventable but possible and reversible through change in diet. That was a change in diet away from animal foods, products, flesh, whatever we called it, to eating way more plant foods. Eating mostly, if not only, plant foods. That, it's that simple. And of course, a lifestyle that incorporates movement and hydration and happiness and love and laughter. So that's the secret that I cliff hung you on at the beginning. And so we find then that uh, the last pro I have here of the raw food diet is that indeed it's very water-containing. And hydration is the essence. It's the source of life. It was up here in our fundamentals. And knowing that fruits and vegetables are food that give back to us rather than take away from us. That's crucial. All right, cons. So this is really important because no one should ever present anything without being critical of what they've just presented. Right? However, I do have some commentary for the commonly held cons. Because the pros, I would say more of like a natural health background like mine would be someone who would be a, a beneficiary of the raw food diet. And then someone who might be more of a critic of the raw food diet are often uh, people who invest in the medicines of civilization. I call them modern medicines, actually. Things like Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, right? That's classical Chinese and Indian medicine, respectively. Right? And these actually don't necessarily encourage the eating of raw foods. But the thing is that there's a misconception as to what these raw foods are. 
And so my background in ethnobotany can help to tease out and understand at a deeper level what this is. So let's go through the criticisms. First of all, a really big one is that it's difficult to digest, that the fibers of the raw foods themselves are too thick and difficult to break down in the human body. Well, not all food's the same. A mango is really different than cabbage. Yeah? And actually, for many foods, I agree, they are too difficult to digest. Just because I say above-ground plants in the natural state doesn't mean all above-ground plants in the natural state. We know that some of them are poisonous. Some of them, like the Poaceae family, the grass family, simply are not meant to be eaten by the human body. We don't eat grass. Cows eat grass. Because their digestive systems, their four stomachs, are made to be able to break down that much cellulose, the thick cell wall of plants. Our human digestive system simply isn't made to do that. And the classic example of this is something that's so super popular in the world today. Has anyone heard of kale? Yeah? So kale is this mature, thick, dense, dark, leafy green. It's very high in chlorophyll, very high in minerals and nutrients, which is like, hurrah, hello, but it doesn't mean anything if our body can't break it down. Just because it's so densely nutritious doesn't mean we can use it. And the truth is that mature raw kale today has too thick of cell walls for our body to break down. And so either juice it or slightly steam it or cook it to break down the cell walls. Or better yet, eat baby kale. The young, tender, baby, sweet leafy greens are the kinds that we're supposed to be eating. They're supposed to be delicious. Magically delicious. Let's make like a Lucky Charms box of leafy green vegetables or something. Do I have any investors in here? All right, so difficult to digest fibers. I would say that this is by all means true to, to many extents. For example, kale. For example, the Brassicaceae family. Things like cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli. Ever notice they make you fart? Yeah, that has to do with how they're broken down in the human body, but it's also a signal from our body that our body's simply not digesting it happily because it has to do with the structure of the plant, that it's just not meant to be eaten by the human body. That doesn't mean don't eat them. Maybe they're better slightly steamed than they would be raw. You see, this isn't a black and white framework or scenario. Other kinds of plants that are difficult to digest in their raw state. Remember what I said I saw in my roommate's poo? I'm testing your memory. Thank you. Good. I'm glad. Carrots. That was in the colon hydrotherapy tube. Good. Yeah, in my roommate's poo, I saw carrots, undigested, these orange specks and slivers, right? It's hard to chew a carrot. Have you ever tried? It's a lot to chew. It's very dense. Because, mind you, that is the root structure of the plant. It is not the plant in its above-ground state. The carrot greens are very different than the carrot itself. And so different roots and tubers are meant to be eaten by a class of animals called tubervores. These are like anteaters, things with flat snouts because their digestive tract has the ability to sift dirt and break down the fibrous matter of things like roots and tubers. Ours simply doesn't. So other roots or tubers, things like potatoes, what do we do? We cook them so the starch is released. You see that? So actually in your human body, cooked carrots are much more digestible than raw carrots. And so I don't say this to try to encourage you never to eat raw carrots again. I simply say this to help you think critically about this whole idea and perspective of diet. So that criticism of difficult to digest fibers is totally true. But how about fruit? 
Or how about young, tender, sweet, leafy green vegetables? Or how about things that we classify culturally as vegetables, but botanically they're actually fruit? Things like zucchini or cucumber. Those are awesome raw and totally absorbable by the human body. Forthcoming book of mine is called The Banana Cucumber Diet. Don't worry, it's not only bananas and cucumbers. But it's, it's the diet for the slogan, hooray, big poo. Anyway, okay. So second con, and then we'll go to the third one, and then we'll open to questions. Second one is that a raw food diet will cool agni, and agni is a, an Ayurvedic term for digestive fire, this idea of digestive fire. Well, the thing is, my, my big problem with this is that actually some fruits and vegetables are heating, and I've been back and forth on this with many of my Chinese medicine doctor friends, other Tibetan medicine doctors, so on and so forth, because this is what I do, right? I communicate with these people and try to find a deeper truth. And I've lived in both China and India for years. And so we find that this idea of digestive fire, mm, it's a bit more relative than that, right? Something like a papaya. I'll be in India and I'll eat a whole papaya and I'll have Indian mamas like yelling at me, like, what are you doing eating the whole papaya? You're going to explode, you're burning up, right? You're so hot because papaya is a heating food. How is that going to cool my digestive fire? And I understand that that's something very different than eating salads all day or eating cucumbers all day, definitely. There is something physiologically in the human body that when our digestive system has to work harder, mind you, different difficult tasks, it creates heat. Have you ever noticed that? You get hot after eating, especially when you're eating like spicy food. You get hot. And so when you're eating easy to digest food, your body doesn't heat up as much. It stays cool. So there's a physiological scientific underpinning of that. But in terms of the Ayurvedic understanding of Agni, digestive fire, this is irrespective of what you eat. Either your digestive fire is there or not. Your digestive system is intact or it's not. You see that? It's not like the food is going to change the fire. The fire is either there or it's not. And so this one I'm not so sure about yeah. because they would probably say fasting also cools digestive fire, whereas what fasting actually does is repair the digestive tract and make it that much more able to digest the foods we're meant to be eating. So there's lots of caveats along the way. We can have a whole new lecture about that if you're interested. Come back another week and request it. And the third con or criticism of the... Raw food diet would be that it's very ungrounding. Uh, it's very vata-inducing. And vata is a term, it's a dosha or a constitution from Ayurveda. It's talking about air and space energy, right? The kind of like up in the clouds, right? Because when you're eating foods that are light in nature, very water-containing in nature, you don't have to spend as much energy in your body digesting them. So you have more energy to feel alive and energetic and more energy to be clear and lucid like air or wind right? or space. Right? And so this lifts you up from the harsh, dense realities of this world. And that as opposed to like a potato and beef stew or something that's big old and hearty and filling, right? that that's a very grounding kind of food because it brings you into your body because your digestive system is simply saying, oh my God, it's going to take me 12 hours to digest this in the stomach alone. You see that? So there's a big difference there, physiologically, that we can acknowledge and say that that is really, really super true. And fasting is another practice that ungrounds vata. It makes us come here up in the airy space, up in the mystic, not taking life so seriously. 
realizing that this is all a joke and none of us are going to get out of it alive. And so we find that, yeah, there's a big reality to that. And what are the benefits of being grounded? Well, if you want to drive a motorbike, it's a big benefit to be fully present in the world, right? I can tell you that after myself or friends being like too out there and then we're driving the motorbike in another world and in another dimension and then in this dimension we get in an accident and it's like, oh, wait, (laughs) that brings you back to your body. But because of that, to balance that out, we would use certain grounding practices. And so even though you could say it's more of an ungrounding diet, I mean, that's all subjective. It's not really saying anything super meaningful, but you can use certain grounding practices through meditation, through energy work, through simple intention that can bring you back into your body. So your reliance on being grounded and present in this physical reality versus up in another world, that's not relying fully on food. There are other ways to negotiate that. So that's my last little thing to say. Who has questions? Hmm, I would use Wikipedia. Wikipedia has a brilliant plant classification system. And so I would look in and look up like Brassicaceae family. Look up kale and look up what plant family it comes from. And then start to track. I'm not sure if anyone's actually gone into this. Um, My interest was piqued in it from one of my teachers, Douglas Graham. So you could read his books. The 80-10-10 diet is one of the more prominent ones. Um, and that is a further resource that I would recommend for people looking to do more of a modern take on the raw food diet. It's called the 80-10-10 diet by Douglas Graham. Um, he's someone who kind of goes into the intense far reaches of human possibility. He does things like the Superman push-up. The guy's like 56 or more. And he, it's where your arms and legs are straight. And then you press your arms and feet into the ground and lift your body up. It's like, how would you ever do that? <laughs> Okay, anyway, so that's that's about living beyond our human norms because you're not meant to be living in this life simply to live and grow up and get married and have kids and be miserable and get fatter and sicker as you age. That's not how the story was supposed to be written. And unfortunately, that's what's happening today and people see that as the only way. And so I'm here to tell you that that's not the only way. Yeah, I'm actually 64 years old. I just look really young, yeah. Yes, I would love to answer that question. It's something that I've been doing more and more intensive experiments on recently. And it's a brilliant question to be asked. So she was asking about salt. And the end of her question was, should you add more salt to the food? And so we have to look at salt and see what it is and see that mineral salts indeed are naturally occurring in natural mineral spring water. Remember I said to have that. So if you need any mineral balances, magnesium, calcium, phosphorus, whatever it is, right? mineral spring water is the first place to get it. Moreover, all of those leafy green vegetables, specifically the ones that you can digest and thus absorb the nutrition from, things like young, tender, baby, sweet, leafy green vegetables, those are definitely things where you can get your mineral salts. Other kinds of vegetables or fruits, I mean, even things like tomatoes or cilantro, coriander leaf, these are very dense, high in naturally occurring salts. Things like celery, naturally occurring salts. But what you see is that these salts are in food. So they're at a perfect ratio. They're in entirety, right, held within water. 
and a matrix of fibrous matter so that your body knows what to do with them and break them down. Now, when we talk about salt in a white powdered form, this is just another one of those white powders, like white sugar and cocaine, and I'll, I'll stop there. I think you get the point, right? We find that this white powdered thing is indeed an extract, even if it's coming from the sea itself. It's an extract, which means it's a derived food. It's a food that's been processed, which is very different than a whole food. A whole food is that thing that Mother Nature, remember the best chef on earth, she prepared for you with that special little package. See, that's a processed food. And so salt along with oil are the two most commonly consumed, assumed to be healthy, processed foods in the world of today. And that's something that I'm ready to start speaking publicly out against or about more and more. Because the thing is that when you take in salt, Right, this processed food, you're doing it at a much more concentrated ratio. And I mean, not all salts are the same. I know there's pink Himalayan salt, there's natural ocean sea salt like we have here from Bali, or there's chemically made NaCl, right, made in a laboratory. That stuff, just throw it out. Whoosh, you don't want that, right? Body won't even begin to recognize that. You see? When you put salt on a living cell under a laboratory slide. Imagine you were looking through a magnifying glass and you see the cells moving and then all of a sudden you add salt and you watch under the magnifying glass. What happens? It sucks out all the water. We know it's naturally dehydrating and water is life. And so as it sucks out the water, it dries everything up. It essentially kills everything that's alive on the cell, on the slide. And so what happens in our body? It's greatly imbalancing to your lymphatic system. This is the hydration in the body. I, I try to train people to notice when they have salt and how they feel in their joints. Have you ever noticed a difference in the size of your rings? Like my ring's a little bit tighter now. I've got to get this fourth liter of water down today. Right. Movement will also greatly affect the flow of water in your body, but salt is pretty much the number one thing that's going to dictate your level of hydration. And so I don't really recommend that you go and pour a bunch of salt on your food. And if you're needing to pour a bunch of salt on your food, perhaps your taste buds have been so deadened from years of eating processed food that you can't naturally taste all of the amazing flavors in naturally occurring food. Or perhaps you're getting really low quality naturally occurring food. It's not local, right? It's not from composted organic soil, right? Because if it is, then the plant probably tastes super rich and is very flavorful and you don't need salt. Yeah, the biggest, I'd say, grievance in the world of today and eating is when someone is served a plate in front of them and without tasting it, they reach for a salt shaker and salt their food. Have you seen that? Wouldn't that be a bit of an insult to the chef? Well, that person, I can tell you, hypertension... Diabetes, obesity, definitely dehydration, which is a precursor to pretty much every disease. Within five, ten years, I'd say that's there. So does that answer your question a little bit? I don't need to add any. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is that is what I'm saying. Instead, <laughs> I love her. Instead, I would recommend that you cut up. 
slice up a bunch of celery into teeny tiny pieces, right? Cut up cilantro, add that to your food. If you're cooking, or even if you're going to a restaurant, carry a bag of fresh herbs around with you. Who cares, right? Put that on your food. Fresh herbs are one of the most incredible ways to revitalize your palate, your body, and your plate. Okay? All right. Hurrah. So, guys, we are, oh, my God, 20 minutes over. I'm sorry. Um, so, we'll stop there because we could just go on all night. Uh, and I love you, and I don't want to take any more of your time. This wasn't very good with us staying on stealing. I stole a lot of your time. Um, but my big message for you is that you don't need to change anything. You don't need to leave here and go have a raw dinner. Really, the only thing you need to do is, is start being more aware, more conscious. Use all of the things, the questions that we've asked tonight, and allow them to help you ask more questions. And so if there are questions that are yours that weren't asked tonight, you didn't have time, please remember that this Facebook page is a, a portal where you can ask all the questions you want, and Facebook will grade me on how well I respond, and uh, that this is a conversation that can continue happening. And again, you don't need to change anything because you're perfect the way you are. You just have to continue to explore your perfection. So I'll see you next week. Thank you, everyone, so much. Have a beautiful night. Incredible people. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Remember, you don't have to change anything right away. Simply become more consciously aware. Tune in next time for more interpretations of our body signals. And don't forget to reprioritize your life around your health to live with maximum vitality.